0: Welcome to Jerusalem Studio Podcast. Join us to discuss the latest updates from Israel and the region.
1: Shalom and welcome to Jerusalem Studio. I am Miri Aizen, sitting in for Jonathan Hessen. Saudi Arabia's Prime Minister and Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman, world-renowned with his own acronym, MBS, has an ambitious program and only eight years remaining to implement it. MBS calls it Vision 2030 and is marketing its main features in terms intended to appeal both to Western decision makers and to Western publics. He talks about weaning the kingdom's economy of its dependence on oil, on social transformation, on women's participation and sustainability. The Saudis have already tried to attract global attention by signing Portugal's soccer star, Cristiano Ronaldo, for a contract worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Diplomatically, I would say Riyadh is dancing around between Washington and Beijing, Jerusalem and Tehran. How successful is he? What may lie ahead for him and his desert country? Joining us from Israel's north, are Colonel in Reserve, Dr. Anan Wahabi, Senior Fellow at ICT, Reichmann University, and a lecturer at Haifa University. Shalom, Anan. Shalom. And Dr. Samuel Wilner, Research Fellow, Hiking Chair for Geostrategy at the University of Haifa. Shalom to Samuel. Shalom. And to start us off right now, I'm going to go to our own Amir Oren, our own commentator. Amir, what do we need to understand about MBS and the Saud future?
0: So uh, MBS um, is quite a prominent uh, figure now on the Middle East um, uh, stage at large, not only uh, his own country, because uh, you cannot separate the personality of uh, the uh, crown prince and prime minister, a title he added uh, to uh, his royal uh, titles in order to be immune from uh, prosecution in the United States, uh, mostly, because of the Khashoggi affair. All of a sudden, he never needed that. But all of a sudden, a few months ago, uh, he turned out uh, to be prime minister, uh, too. And therefore, uh, he enjoys diplomatic immunity. And uh, obviously, if you look back at the uh, succession of kings uh, in the Ibn Saud um, dynasty, uh, this is uh, the uh, most innovative um, and uh, groundbreaking hair apparent. And um, he has enjoyed good relations with former President Trump, less so with the Democratic administration of Joe Biden. There were hopes in Israel, especially under Netanyahu, um, before He was ousted, now he is back in power, of course, that um, Riyadh would be the next capital to normalize relations with Israel. It doesn't seem so right now, but we will explore it. And uh, obviously, the visit by uh, Chinese leader Xi Jinping um, to Riyadh emphasized the importance of uh, Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is obviously threatened by Iran, but then you also see um, a double standard. Saudi Arabia is also probably preparing to go nuclear if the Iranians do. So um, the Middle East is having at least a double proliferation problem on its hands.
1: The idea is something that we're really going to explore, both the nuclear, the security. But I want to start off with some of the words that Amir used. And um, Dr. Wahabi Anand, I'm going to start off with you. And I'm wondering to myself about the terms that Amir just used. So he's certainly innovative, MBS. He's certainly groundbreaking. And then I go, indeed, is he really Anand, how is MBS viewed within the Saudi world, within the Arabic-speaking world? Is he viewed as groundbreaking and innovative, or is he at the end playing with words with what we call the Western public, and it really isn't changing things inside domestic Saudi Arabia? How would you relate to these ideas?
2: Yes. We must remember that uh, when Ben Salman appeared, uh, everybody in the region, and especially I'm talking about the Arab world, uh, were very interesting to know who is this man, who is this figure. He is the beloved son uh, of his mother, and therefore he was chosen from uh, the white family to be uh, the (laughs) crown prince. uh, And uh, everybody started uh, studying this man he is really a very special one we can say that we are talking about the new role of the younger leaders in the gulf um, as well as in the emirates and in qatar especially um, those three leaders uh, plus or minus the same at the same age and bin salman is dominating the the, the new the in, uh, in the gulf uh, yes he is very special He was the the younger, uh, for example, defense minister Um, when he started in. He is going to change, his role is to change uh, Saudi. They are talking about the fourth Saudi uh, Arabia state, means that he is going to liberate the country uh, regarding women and um, a lot of interaction with the West, and as well uh, normalizing with Israel. Yes, he is going to to bring a, a very big change.
1: It's fascinating to hear it in that way. And as I go to you, Samuel, and I think about this, let's talk about Saudi Arabia in its arena, as Anand just mentioned, neighbors on the Gulf and as a dominant country. We didn't always think of Saudi Arabia as being a dominant country in the greater Middle East. How do you think in that sense that MBS, this new Saudi Arabia, is changing its relationship within the arena that it's at with the Gulf countries vis-a-vis Iran, perhaps vis-a-vis Israel?
3: So, definitely, there, there's um, first of all, I would say that uh, Saudi relations with Israel and, uh, and, um, is based on the fact that Saudi Arabia wants to preserve its, uh, um, its uh, survival. It's much more decisive uh, under bin Salman. It's more bold, it's more independent, and it wants to show that its decisions are, are uh, uh, sovereign. I agree that in a way it's groundbreaking, but it all stems from this this very fact.
1: So, assuming uh, that what they want to do is, to, as you said, it's um, a change itself, could you elaborate a bit more on how you view that change, that younger generation, when it comes to the relations with the countries
3: around Saudi Arabia? So, Saudi Arabia sees itself as a nation with a lot of, of course, young population. But at the same time, it's a challenge because... Um, In the past decades, or in the past uh, 60, 70 years, we've seen also um, uh, uh, that the the regimes were overthrown, or the monarchies were overthrown. um, And uh, this is a challenge that the um, royal family needs to think about all the time. Uh, um, And uh, also um, the power of the Wahhabi movement uh, uh, needs to be checked, and the Saudis, under bin Salman, has, have made uh, a great efforts to change this. Uh, um, and instead of um, giving, showing that the, the uh, Saudis were established uh, uh, um, together with the Wahhabis, they say that the Saudis are, are um, they, they, they were not so dependent on, on, on the Wahhabis.
1: So it's a fascinating aspect. I'm going to take it from there for a moment. And and, Amir, as you hear Dr. Wilner, and he's bringing in the domestic aspect, and we haven't really explored that as much, but as you started out, so on the one hand, he's appealing in Western ideas. And then that question is, so does it really have a basis inside Saudi Arabia? And how does that relate around it? How would you tie these things together when we look at Saudi Arabia's challenges?
0: So all the uh, monarchic uh, and other uh, dictatorial or authoritarian rulers in the Middle East have learned... You
1: may want to give a list for those of us who don't remember what they are right now.
0: Yes, but but, uh, no, whether they were uh, military officers uh, who uh, came to power in a coup, or whether they uh, inherited the mantle from uh, their fathers, they have all learned the lesson of the late Shah of Iran, who um, started out um, with very tight control over his country, then uh, tried to loosen up a bit, and found out the, uh, what was called the uh, revolution of uh, higher expectations, uh, because once uh, you do open up gradually, and there is a new horizon for the middle classes, for students, for labor. Then there is uh, a danger, especially, of course, when religion is involved, that uh, you will be toppled. So uh, MBS is walking a very fine line. Yes, he is transforming um, Saudi society, especially as regards to women. The uh, the new vistas of uh, Saudi women behind the wheel. Yeah,
1: uh, I'm, I'm one who constantly questions century.
0: that, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. Um, but uh, there is always this fear of um, subversion, perhaps led by outside forces, uh, <coughs> various provinces being torn from the kingdom. But the main problem for Saudi Arabia is that it is a petroleum powerhouse and the military midget. It has no sustainability if there is a conflict with Iran or anyone else. It is dependent, for instance, on uh, maintenance of its air force, on uh, foreign contract workers. They are going uh, to go away when the first missile hits, and um, Saudi Arabia will always be dependent on outside Advisors and perhaps combat units be they Pakistani or American. So in a way uh, MBS is uh, punching above his weight
1: Punching above his weight and you brought up into the room both the security and the domestic Challenges in that sense of religion and Anand as I look at you right now I want to kind of bring the two together Um, Yes, I'm going to make a statement right now, and it's not exactly one that's easy, but at the end, Saudi Arabia is a Sunni country, and it hosts, it is the keeper of the two Muslim holy cities, Mecca, Medina, the annual Hajj, the Umrah, and that is something that is for all Muslims worldwide. On the other hand, Amir, as you said before, the possibility of Saudi Arabia going nuclear is more or less, would we say, a minute after Iran would go nuclear. So I'm kind of worried right now. On the one hand, Saudi Arabia is the country that all Muslims worldwide want to come to more than once in their lifetime, want to come during the Hajj, during the Umrah. They're coming from anywhere around the world. And on the other hand, Saudi Arabia um, is looking right now with the threat of Shiite regime in Iran, of other threats around it. How do we combine these two? What do these threats mean?
2: Yeah, a wonderful question. I've just uh, uh, came back from the Gulf, and you could see there, when you are there, how um, the, the weight of the, uh, uh, if this part of the Islamic world, uh, world is, is very um, central. Uh, Saudi Arabia, of course, considers itself, and it's so as well, as a keeper of the holy places in the Islam. And um, you can feel the tension between the Persians and the Arabs, especially now between Iran and Saudi, and everybody feels that. Uh, Ben Salman, uh, as a leader, is seeking right now to get the legitimacy of his rule, uh, on the one hand. On the the other hand, he is very, very busy with uh, calming down anything that is related to Islamism, because we all know that the the only alternative and firm um, um, party that can replace any kind of the uh, current regimes in the Arab world, whether if we talk about monarchies or a uh, republic alike, is Islamism, the Islamic alternative, in Egypt, in Syria, and also the extreme uh, sides of Islamism in Saudi Arabia itself. So they are the internal opponents of any uh, existing regime, and therefore, when when it uh, comes to uh, uh, Islam and the holy places—it's very, very sensitive. And we could see uh, after being um, visit to Al-Aqsa uh, or, the, or the or the temple. It depends who tells the story in Jerusalem, how everybody uh, was uh, reacting, and so Saudi Arabia, hurries of course to to condemn this kind of visit because everything is very sensitive right now. So in a
1: way, what you're saying, Anand, is that there's a a kind of built-in tension between that need to be the keeper of the holy places for every Muslim, and that should be also both Sunni or Shiite worldwide, 2 billion Muslims, and between the Saud's own fear for its domestic capacity to keep its kingdom. I'm going to take that sentence in that sense as I go, Dr. Wilner, and I look around and I think to myself, okay, so Saudi Arabia in that sense, these two different tensions, that domestic one of being at the end, a dictatorship that we call a kingdom, by the way, I do have to add, as the woman in the audience here right now, Yay, so I can drive. Saudi Arabia is a very, very, very limiting country for women. Let's not put the driver's seat for the women into the fact that they're suddenly a liberal democracy. They're not, not for women. And I put that on the table to remind ourselves Because he may be going in a direction, but it's one of the reasons also, as I come back to you, Dr. Wallner, that there is tension between the present government um, administration in the United States and Saudi Arabia over women, activists being in jail over other liberal ideas. How does Saudi Arabia defend itself in that sense against a nuclear Iran in the future when it has a very complex relationship right now with the Democratic administration in Washington? How does it balance that with being both conservative domestically, but it wants to give off an aura of not being conservative to the Western world?
3: Can you tie those together a bit? Well, Right, the United States wants to put pressure on the Saudis uh, on on various fields, and uh, of course, the human rights aspects is uh, is uh, high on the agenda of the Democratic uh, uh, White House. But I think there's a missing of understanding in the, in the in their side of how the Saudis work, what their real concerns are, especially in um, and the immense pressure that the, that the kingdom has been not only now but. Uh, for a long time. Um, and uh, this is something that, especially now, uh, the youth, youthful population, that comes to pressure to changing inside, uh, uh, reducing the um, influence of the Wahhabi movement, um, and, uh, of course, trying to make as many uh, um, changes inside Saudi Arabia as possible. But there's a lot of pressure. Uh, uh, and I would like to also little bit mention a few things about the, the, the budgetary pressures, that that it, it's a, a very... Uh, population is growing very fast and there's not enough money. And, not and enough money as
1: in they need to produce more oil to have more money, they need the price to go up?
3: Right, right. Uh, price to go up, I mean, there's a uh, um, talk that you need at least uh, $80 per barrel, even 100 barrels. This is... Um, the foundation, this is a, the issue that um, Biden administration wants to, to Saudis to increase production. Uh, at the same time, uh, Saudis want to emphasize that it's a, their own sovereign decision, and, and their interests are on top of the uh, agenda, not yes. the United States uh, uh, with Russia, United States, uh, Iran, United States human rights, uh, or U.S. domestic uh, uh, political uh, uh, interests.
1: When we look at it, though, Amir, and into what now just came in in that sense, look at all of the elements that we have. We want to talk about MBS. We want to talk about changes. There are economic pressures. There's the youth growth, which is that bump throughout the Middle East. It's changing from oil. But wait a second. They're also the keeper of the holy places, Mecca and Medina. That's for Sunnis and Shiites. But wait a second, and we get to Iran. I can't avoid it. I'm sitting here in Jerusalem. I'm sitting here in Israel. We've had a change of government. Let's start out on this journey. So what does Israel want? think that Saudi Arabia could do different now? Can these changes really impact the relationship between Israel and Saudi Arabia?
0: When you say Israel, you mean Netanyahu. That's where we are
1: right now, absolutely.
0: Well, um, the uh, Israeli impact around the world, and especially in the Middle East, had a lot to do historically with the um, impression that uh, Israel, the perception that Israel um, has a lot of clout in Washington. If Israel is perceived as being able to move Capitol Hill um, as well as the administration, or even uh, to play Capitol Hill Congress against the administration, then um, it finds open doors in the Middle East. This was true until President Biden came to power. It was also not true when Obama was the president and Biden was his vice president. So right now, what can Israel give Saudi Arabia that MBS would want from Netanyahu? We know what Netanyahu wants from MBS, but what can he give in return? Especially when the Abraham Accords are, as the Biden administration puts it, not a substitute to uh, progress towards uh, solving the Palestinian problem. So it seems as if the normalization process, uh, even, even now, uh, even uh, a few days ago, there was the Negev Forum uh, meeting again, which started uh, at Sdeboker last year. But this is not a substitute. This is a way, without Saudi Arabia, Saudis were not uh, participating. They were
1: not there in the past either.
0: Right. So so, um, right now, um, it doesn't seem as if the Israeli-Saudi effort would have any traction.
1: So here we are, and we're looking at this, and Dr. Wahhabi Anan, as I'm looking and I'm thinking to myself, let's continue with this Israel and Saudi Arabia, and I'm sitting here and going Iran. Because I can't ignore that. You just came back from the Gulf. You understand, I think, when we talk about the Abraham Accords, there's such a strong connection to the anti-regime of Iran, that nuclear problem. How would you tie this in here? What could we expect? Can there be a change on that issue?
2: Yes, the the anti-Iran common ground of the national interests of both countries, and, and the other neighboring countries as well, the rejection of this Iranian expansion, uh, is, uh, is something very on uh, the top line that we, we are sharing right now on this page. Now we can see that, uh, for example, uh, after the visit of the, security, uh, the, the uh, White House security advisor, uh, Mr. Sullivan, that arrived to Israel, he was talking uh, about uh, reducing the tension right now in Jerusalem in order to continue, first containing Iran, the next step, and then working for uh, achieving uh, the peace agreement and normalization with uh, with Saudi Arabia. Um, we think that we can see uh, from here uh, and we also hear the news about the covered uh, interaction between Israel and Saudi Arabia in a lot of um, issues that uh, what we share in common right now is uh, to continue the preparing the next step for the normalization. I think that the uh, normalization with Saudi Arabia will not happen formally um before how to say that before the uh, King Salman passes mm-hmm. away because he belongs to that the generation that the, uh, everything is related to the Palestinian issue but maybe Ben Salman himself uh, will be um, at the backside right now of the normalization waiting to move on to uh, a, a real uh, a change in the situation on the ground we can see that the, the, the international atmosphere right now is uh, is upset. There's um, a, a regional uh, also changes. Still everything is stabling down and coming to a new political order, regionally. And then the full normalization expected is only after a real progress uh, in resolving the Palestinian issue somehow, so putting uh, something that can be accepted by the Arab world. What is so- risky at this point? Well, uh, last sentence, please. What is risky at this point is engaging the, uh, the religious dimension with the national issue of the Palestinian uh, crisis together. This will put Sa- Saudi uh, in a very inconvenient uh, place.
1: Dr. Wilner, when you look at this, do you also see that the Israel-Saudi relationship is basically going to wait until either King Salman passes away or something happens on the Israeli-Palestinian front?
3: Um, yeah. Well, only time will tell, of course, um, how the relations will develop. Um, naturally, there's, there's interest on both sides to, to warm the relations. and. Uh, and, um, and I would say that MBS is moving faster than his predecessors, but he's still very cautious. He's, he's, um, he operates uh, because as a Saudi, and the time is very different for the Saudis than it's uh, uh, from the Western point of view. They have time to wait. Um, of course, they have the interest when it comes to Israel also. We can ask that how the relations between Saudi, and, uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel. Um, uh, would help to preserve the monarchy. And if we talk about the economic interests, but also uh, uh, military uh, uh, issues, um, I would sideline the, the Saudi relations with China. China provides um, uh, uh, weapon systems that the United States haven't provided uh, um, Saudi Arabia, or the other Gulf nations. So there's also this kind of change in, in, um, in the dynamics in the region. And where Israel um, fits in is, is Israel plays an important role in, in, in here. And I, I would say that in the longer run Saudis will hugely benefit. And it of course depends a bit of, this, uh, of the of course on the Israel-Palestinian relations, and the Palestinian issues, Syria also, we can talk about Jordan, Egypt, and how they see Saudi relations. But then again, MPS, I would say, emphasizes also that. This is a sovereign Saudi decision. He will do as is uh, uh, according to the interest of the Saudi Saudi Arabia.
1: Absolutely. Um, Thank you so much for that. I'm going to stop you there. Amir, what would we say at the end of this program to where we're going?
0: Right now, a holding pattern. The Saudis fear Iran, but Israel wants to put the fear of God or Allah into Iran. So they are not really on the same page.
1: Well, with these ideas, as we talk about Saudi Arabia, I want to thank our two panelists. I want to thank Amir Oren. I want to thank you. And thank you again for joining us in Jerusalem Studio.
0: Thank you for joining us in another Jerusalem Studio podcast. For more content on Israel and its region, we invite you to visit our website at tv7israelnews.com and follow us on social media.